0: Well, this week we are going to begin a new series. We are gonna be in Romans five through eight. And um, the reason I wanted to start this was, uh, I've just, I've had a number of conversations with folks who feel like they're stuck. They're stuck in sin. They're stuck in habits. They're stuck in choices. And they feel like they need to break away and can't. And some of it is a misunderstanding about uh, who they are in Christ and what that does. And, and the idea of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 is it, it allows us to see that we are in Christ. We are new creations. And as new creations, we are not bound by our sin. Our sin does not define us. And we have the ability to break away from those choices that we make or from those patterns that we, we have committed ourselves to. Um, and, and so I, I, I think this will be an important um, thing for us in the life of our church and for us individually, just to be able to, to think rightly about who we are in Christ. I don't know if any of you uh, wanted to be uh, superheroes when you were growing up. I wanted to be Superman, and so I would stick a towel in my shirt, um, and it was my cape, and I would zoom around the house, and I would say I was Superman, and um, there were a couple times that didn't work out so well. Uh, generally, that involved me being at the top of the stairs and thinking I could fly down to the bottom of the stairs, and uh, that didn't work out very well. Um, I, I think, though, the, the idea of a hero was not really connected to me to real life until I was 10 years old. Um, It was January 13th, 1982, and I was laying on the floor uh, of our house in Lovetown, Pennsylvania in our brown shag carpet um, and watching our black and white TV, Um, and we were watching the news, and watching the news had become kind of a ritual for our family because the economy was in bad shape. We were in a recession. 12 million people were out of work like there, there is now. But what was different was um, then the prime interest rate was 21% where it's like 3.25 now. Um, And so the economy was like, everybody was worried about the economy. We had just come through, you know, gas shortages and all all kinds of things. And so um, uh, my parents would turn on the news, hoping there'd be some sort of good news. And night after night, there was bad news. And this particular night, there was tragic news. Air Flight 90 taking, out, taking off out of Washington, DC um, had ice on its wings and it crashed into the 14th Street Bridge and then into the Potomac. And when that happened, there were 79 people inside the, the plane. And I don't know how this was a thing, but somehow the media was there before the rescue teams. And so the, they were there with cameras and they were watching what was happening. And, and, um, and then when the rescue team showed up, they had a helicopter um, and, and they, they came in and they began to, to throw down life vests. There was one guy who was basically responsible for getting a whole bunch of people out of the plane. Arlen D. Williams Jr. had been in the plane, and and when it crashed, he was somehow able to to get the door open and get some people out. And so there were six people that got out of of the plane, and and the rest of them did not. And and when the the helicopter came, um, Arlen D. Williams, this guy who had had pushed people out the the hatch of the the Plane. Um, they threw him a, a life vest, and he threw it to someone else. And then they, the helicopter dropped the ball, the rescue ball, um, down on a rope, and he passed it off to a woman who they drug over to the to the uh, shore. And then they they came back to him, and he passed it off to a guy who had the presence of mind to grab two other people, and they drug three people across to the shore. And then there was a woman who was desperately swimming away from the wreckage because she was afraid she'd get sucked down with it when it went under. And, and, and so he pushed it off to her and, and they pulled her away to safety. And when they came back, Arlen D. Williams Jr., the man who had gotten people out of the plane, the man who had worked to rescue everyone else was not there anymore, he had gone under. And so over the, the coming weeks, um, they rebuilt the 14th Street Bridge and they renamed it the Arlen D. Williams Jr. Memorial Bridge after him because of his heroism. I don't know if it's because I was 10 years old. I, I don't know why those images became so ingrained in my mind and why they captured my imagin- imagination the way that they did. Um, but at, at first, I like all I could think about was like, wow, this guy laid down his life for other people. What a hero. Like, I wonder if I would be that hero. I wonder if I would be the one to lay down my life for other people. But as I got older, I began to realize like, I'm not gonna be the hero. I desperately need a hero. I desperately need someone to save me. And so uh, I began to read, and as as I would read, I would read things like Henry David Thoreau. Henry David Thoreau wrote, the mass of men live in quiet desperation. And I thought, yeah, I understand that. The Roman satirist and poet Juvenile wrote, Nemo malus Felix, which is Greek for no one is happy because no one is good. I remember during the Clinton administration, um, Dick Morris, one of uh, the Clintons' uh, advisors, uh, it came out that he had had an affair and and uh, and he was having to resign. and And he made this statement um, that that kind of encapsulated the things I was feeling. He said, "I find I have a fundamental flaw in my character. I have a fundamental weakness, a fundamental sin, if you will." And I began to consider the fact that I. Like Dick Morris, I need a hero. I need a savior because there's something inside of me that's not right. I cannot be consistently good because I am not inherently good. I am. I am not um, able to make good choices all the time because there's something inside of me that's driving me to do the wrong thing. I probably we can all identify with this, right? At some point or another, we've all had a conversation. Um, with someone or someone's had a conversation with us where we're, we're asking like, why are you doing this? And they say, because I want to. Well, well, don't you know it will hurt you? Yes. D- has, have you seen the damage that this has created for other people? Yes. Are you going to regret this later? Yes. Then why are you doing it? And and the answer is because there's something driving me past common sense, something driving me past morals, something that in me just desperately wants to do this thing. And I do it and I immediately regret it. And then I do it again what is that about? Why are we like that? Why? I, Tanya and I were watching um, uh, a virtual uh, gala for the Westside Pregnancy Center and for Claris Health Network, which we've supported for years. And, and we love that that uh, group of folks and and the work that they do to give women options so that they don't have to abort their babies. Um, there were two women that, g- that gave their testimony this year. And, and typically, they have women share, like, this is how, you know, I was interviewed. Introduced to the pregnancy center. I had an unattended pregnancy. And, and but what was unique this year was both of these women, their story was very similar. They were introduced to the pregnancy center. One while she was in college, one while she was attending the church and, and they volunteered there and they were like, helping other women and they were seeing the choices they made and they saw like women come in for counseling, post-abortion counseling, because they were just devastated by the choice that they had made. And and here's these two women, they have seen other women make bad choices and, and the results and the fallout that go with that. And then both of them said, I would have never thought I would need the pregnancy centers services. And they went on to tell one, talked about how she had an abortion and then she needed post-abortion counseling. And and she, you know, like was devastated by that. The other had an unintended pregnancy and then she needed support to kind of get through that process. And and I, I sat there thinking like, this is us. We do this, we know better. Like the problem isn't self control. The problem isn't we don't know better. The problem is there's something we cannot be consistently good because we are not inherently good. It's it's we're no different in some ways. You might remember Anthony Weiner. Anthony Weiner was a political star, kind of rising, and and people thought he was gonna you know go great places. All of a sudden, Anthony Weiner like is completely shamed because all of his conversations and text messages and pictures and whatever were were exposed. And when that happened, um he, he made this comment, he goes, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, I, I know that this was destructive and I knew that it was a mistake and that conversations could be overheard or, or translated to other people. And I knew that, that this was a problem. And And he went on to say, he goes, there's some people say that everything's part of a plan, but I got to tell you, this was not calculated. In this case, it was just me doing a very dumb thing. And I think if we're honest, we think of ourselves in the way that Anthony Weiner thinks of himself. He thinks of himself as A good guy who did some really dumb things. And we tend to think of ourselves as people who are pretty good and we occasionally mess up. We're pretty good and sometimes we sin. If you were to say like, hey, you know, describe yourself. Well, I'm not perfect right? That's how we would say it. It's because we think that we're generally good and we sometimes mess up and it offends us if someone tells us, no, you are not generally good. You are actually generally bad and you sometimes do some good things. And and that offends us. And the idea that we would need a savior, that really offends us because because we go, no, 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 I I don't need that. I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as some of those people. Right. It it offends us. And I, I think part of what drew me to Christianity and uh, Christianity is unique among world religions because it offers a savior. And it's it's not just a savior who saves us from the consequence of sin, but it's a savior who saves us from the power of sin. And, and I think, you know, lots of other world religions, they have books or they have prophets or they have places of worship or they have teachers. Um, But in this Christianity is unique. It's, it's, it doesn't just take the consequences of sin. It's not just forgiving or washing over sin. It's taking away the power of sin in our lives. And if, if you believe that there are many ways to God and, and Jesus is legitimately one of them, then what you believe is that you don't need a savior and you believe that you are generally a good person who occasionally does bad things. And when you stand before God, you'll say, well, no one's perfect and I'm not as bad as they were. And that excuse isn't gonna work. Romans chapter five starts off talking about all the things we want most in life. The things we want, we want peace. We want access to unlimited grace. We want hope. We want unshakable joy. We want to experience true love. And and Romans chapter 5 tells us we can have those things. But first, we have to admit two things. One, we're God's enemies. And two, we desperately need a Savior. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, begins this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, justified, Sometimes people teach justified means just as if I'd never sinned, but really justified means just and holy, just as Jesus is holy. We have been justified. We have been made as righteous as Jesus by faith we have peace with God. That's the only way we could have peace with God. If we are as righteous as Jesus and and God is perfect, God only ever does what's good, right, and perfect. He does not allow sin to remain in his presence. And so, I mean, you go through the Old Testament and Adam and Eve sinned and they were put out of the garden and then Cain sinned and he was put out of the land. And then the people continued to live and do only sin continuously. And they were wiped away by a flood, God, is holy and righteous and just and only, only ever uh, allows perfection. And and when he says we have been justified and we have peace with God, it means we are as righteous as Jesus and we stand in his presence completely holy. And that is how we have peace with God because we are in Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but the idea of being in Christ, we have his righteousness. So, through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace by which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And more than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So Paul sets this up and goes, hey, the things that we want most, we actually have in Christ. And then he goes kind of backwards, and he and he talks to us about how we got there. And this is kind of what we need to understand to be able to understand the rest of Romans six, seven, and eight. Is is how we got here. And and what he begins with is in Romans chapter five, verse six, is sin. He goes, look, we have a problem, and the problem is sin. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, ungodly. We're the opposite of God. In fact, when when he uses three different words in this passage, the ungodly, sinners, and enemies, and he uses them interchangeably. And when he says ungodly, we are in opposition to God. We are his enemies enemies the the problem that we have is that we are sinners and because we are sinners we desperately need someone to save us and we are god's enemies because we are in opposition to him because he is god and we are ungodly right and so that starting point for understanding the difference that Christ can make in your life begins with understanding that that you are not a good person who occasionally does, does bad things that you are ungodly that you are a bad person who sometimes does some good things. And, and C.S. Lewis put it this way. We are half-hearted people. We are fooling about with sex and drink and ambition while infinite joy awaits us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because they cannot imagine what it is meant to have the offer of a holiday by the sea. Our sin is in control of us. And, and if you doubt me, just try to stop. Like for a whole day, just go without sinning try to go a whole hour, right? I mean, try to go a day of, of not snapping at your kids or your spouse or at not yelling at somebody as you're driving down the highway at not thinking something about like your coworker when you're on a Zoom call and they just drone on and on, right? Try not to sin for a day and see how that goes. It, the problem is not that you don't have enough self-control and the problem is not that you're not committed enough. And the problem is not that you don't know better. The problem is that you are ungodly. You were born that way. You were born a sinner. Romans chapter five, verse six, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, they might dare to die. But God showed his love to us that while we were sinners, ungodly sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. Now, therefore, we have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? So the the idea that he's going to lay out for us is that we are ungodly, that we are sinners. And we are sinners not because we choose to sin. We are sinners because in Adam, all of us sinned. We were in Adam. And, And in Adam... All of us became sinners. And so we choose to sin because we are sinners because Adam sinned and we were in Adam. You know, that doesn't sound fair. It doesn't sound fair, but it's true. This is what it says. For while we are enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And so it says more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We know that, that we are sinners because we die. We know that we are in Adam because just like Adam died, we are dying. And we know that his sin, we were in Adam and, and his sin affected us. that doesn't sound fair. Think of it this way. I have a friend, her name is Darla Mateka, and Darla and I traveled together for a year uh, in between my second and third year of college. And uh, Darla, um, her mom, her birth mom uh, was a crack addict. And so Darla was born as a crack baby and she was dropped at a shelter. And for the first three months of her life, she just screamed and cried because she was addicted to crack and it wasn't her choice. It was her mom's choice, but she was in her mother's womb. And because she was in her mother and her mother used crack, Darla became a crack addict. And not only did she become a crack addict, it had terrible effects on her body. And she had physical manifestations and problems and deformities and and health issues her whole entire life because her mom was a crack addict. It's, It's one of the saddest things imaginable Um, and, And there's something in our hearts that cries out about the injustice about it. We go, no, that's not fair. It's not right. And you're right. It's not fair. It's not right. But it's true. It's what happened. Darla was in her mother's womb. And as a result, Darla was a crack addict. We were an atom all of us were in Adam and Adam's choice that alienated him from the father is part of our makeup. We are born sinners before we've ever committed a sin. And so it's our nature. It's what the Bible, like what theologians refer to as original sin, that we sin because we're sinners. And so the the problem that we have is sin and the price tag according to this verse, is that it's death. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Like when, when we know that, that we are sinners because we die. We're, we know that we are touched by sin because our bodies are getting older and they're progressing. Every day that we live is a day that we're progressing towards death. And, and death spread to all men because all in Adam sinned. It's not, that's just about our choices. It's about who we are, that we are in Adam. And because we're in Adam, we're going to die like Adam died. And so we carry the sentence of death. And and if you are convinced that you're not a sinner, all you have to do is look in the mirror and see the wrinkles and see the gray hair coming and know that you're progressing towards death. And God did not create man to die. God created us to live. He gave us life and, and he values life. And so there's a provision. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So th- there was before Moses and the law, we know that there was sin because there was death yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come, but the free gift is not like the trespass for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And this is it. There's a problem and it's sin and there's a price tag and it's death, but there's a provision and it's Jesus. And Jesus, the the penalty is death. And he said, I'll take that death, right? And, And he did it in a way that is unimaginable. Um, imagine if, if, as I was telling that story in the front end about Arlen D. Williams, imagine if he had not been in a plane taken off from Washington, D.C. that crashed into the Potomac. Imagine if he had been deployed and he had been captured by the Taliban. And when he was captured by the Taliban, they were putting him on a transport to take him for a public execution to make a spectacle of him. But some, for some reason, the plane goes down. Is Arlen D. Williams, like a guy who has been sent out to... be a a combatant, right? Against these guys, is he going to try to rescue them and pull them out of the plane? No, what he's going to do, he's going to try to take out as many of them as possible so he can get out and he can escape. Right. And and what we read here in Romans five is that, that barely for a righteous man, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were enemies, Christ chose to die. The Death is the penalty for sin. It, 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 it must be paid. And, and yet, um, Jesus said, I will take that death. And so the provision of Christ is what makes all the difference. And it's not like the trespass, right? It's, it's one man brought sin into the world, and one man offered to take the penalty for that sin. And so this is the idea of um, what theologians call propitiation. Propitiation just simply means this. God is satisfied. It's God is righteous. God in his righteousness only ever does what's good, right, and perfect. And because God is holy and he only ever does what's good, right, and perfect, God does not allow sin to remain unaddressed in his presence. You just look at the Old Testament, right? Adam, sinned and he was put out of the garden. God did not allow sin to remain unaddressed in his presence. Cain sinned and he was put out of the land. The, the people became so sinful and only sin continuously. And God said, I have to remove them from the planet. And he set a flood. And, and that is God being holy and righteous and only ever doing what's good, right and perfect and not allowing sin to remain ad- unaddressed in his presence when when we look at what jesus has done is that jesus Took the penalty we deserved. He took the separation we deserved. He that that separateness, the God putting us out. He took that for us. And and it's it's very similar. Years ago, I heard a story about uh, a judge who was sitting in a courtroom, and they were bringing in a kid who was like a new driver, and he had been going um, more than double the speed limit. And so the the minimum fine was going to be ten thousand dollars, and and if he couldn't pay the ten thousand dollars, he would go to jail. As they brought the the boy in, the judge realized this is his own son. Um, And and if he was going to be a righteous judge, then he was going to have to pass righteous judgment. And he was going to have to not say, well, I'm going to let him off because I love him. He was going to have to continue to be righteous. He was going to have to continue to judge rightly. And so he pronounced a judgment, a $10,000 fine or go to jail. And then because in his righteousness, he had to pass that judgment. In his love, he stepped down and he took off his robe and he took out his checkbook and he paid the fine, right? That That is the idea of what it is that Jesus did. Jesus, um, it, God in his righteousness exacts a, a, a penalty for sin. Sin is the problem. The price tag is death and someone needed to die. And Jesus, while we were his enemies, chose to die in our place. And so the provision of Jesus is propitiation. And the provision of Jesus is pardon, that our records are expunged, that we are justified, that we are declared righteous. And it's not just as if I never sinned. We become just as righteous as Jesus. And we are declared righteous because we are actually righteous, not because God makes a declaration that isn't true. It it says this, the free gift is not the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass. And remember, that judgment has been satisfied. That propitiation means judgment is satisfied. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. It brought pardon. We are declared righteous because we are actually made as righteous as Jesus. And God does not lie. He does not lie and declare us to be something that we're not. We are taken out of Adam and we are placed in Christ. And, And there's a fundamental change to our nature. Just as Adam's choice separated us from God, Christ's choice reconciles us to God. And the relationship that we once had with God has been restored. And so, so the, the power over sin or the power of sin over our destiny has changed. And the power of sin over our will has changed. What do I mean by that? The power of sin over your destiny has changed. And that is because um, Christ has taken the destiny that you deserved. He took the death that, that we actually owed. Um, and and there should be no fear now of retribution or of judgment or of, of death right? Um, It's kind of, when I was a little kid, um, uh, my, I I don't remember how old I was. I'm somewhere maybe between Carl and Micah's age. Um, uh, The my dad and I were out in the backyard. My dad was shoveling something. So he must have been planting a bush. Um, but I remember I was scared of the big bubble bumblebees, and they were loud and they buzzed, and I and I was afraid it would sting me. And and um a big bumblebee came by and and it stung my dad. And when it stung my dad, he yelped um and uh swatted at it, and then it flew and it was flying towards me. And I panicked. I began to like cry and scream and run. And my dad said, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't want it to sting me. And he was like, it can't sting you because the stinger is still in me. The, the idea that that the power of sin over your destiny changes means that the sting of death is not waiting for you because Jesus has taken the sting. And, and you don't have to worry about the sting of death, but the power of sin over your will has changed. And some of you are thinking like, mm, that doesn't jive with my experience. Like sin is alive in me. And as long as you wear the flesh that is in Adam, the sin will be alive in you but you have been given a new nature. The scripture says you are a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. It means that you have the ability to actually say no to sin. And we're, we're gonna talk about this in the coming weeks, but you have the ability to go, no, that's not who I am. And 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 to, to be able to choose rightly. So the provision of Jesus is propitiation. God is satisfied. The provision of Jesus is pardon, that your record is expunged. And, and you are given then, life and 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 this is what it says it says um for if because one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man Jesus it's not just you don't get death it's that you get to reign in life what why reign in life Because you have all the righteousness of Jesus, all the things that characterize him, because you have been taken out of Adam and you have been placed in Christ, everything that is true about Jesus is true about you. You are a son. You are an heir. You get to reign because he reigns. You are in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you get to to live his life, you get to be free and you get to live his life and you get to reign in life through one man. And it's, it's, it's more than just an emancipation proclamation. It's, it's more than just, you're no, you're no longer bound. It's that you have become a prince. You have become a princess. You have become an heir of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so you reign in life. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification, to the declaration that you're righteous and the actual realization that you are righteous and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the idea of eternal life, and we've talked about this before, is that eternal life is that you have the life of the eternal one, that God gives you his spirit and his spirit lives within you and you have his life. And because you have the spirit, you have life. And the spirit is the guarantee that not just, you will not just have life in this life, but you'll have life in the next. The idea is, and I don't know why as as a kid, the churches that I went to, they, they talked about justification and the idea was you get heaven. And that is not good gospel theology. The, the, the truth of the gospel is you get God. You get the Holy Spirit because you get him. He is the good news. You get him. And because you have him, you have life in this life and in the next. And, and heaven is just a byproduct of being where he is because you are in Christ. And because you're in Christ, you have his spirit. And because you have his spirit, you have life. That is the idea behind this. And so, so as, as we read Paul's ideas here, Paul's ideas are one man messed everything up for everybody and one man fixed everything up for everybody who will choose him like for everyone who God draws for everyone who is is called to him for everyone who places their faith in him he's he will fix this up all we have to do is admit that we are enemies of God and we need a savior right um, so we are free positionally and and we are free practically. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. Um, and you go, I don't feel like I'm free. We're going to talk about that next week. And and specifically, like the things I don't want to do, I do. and The things I don't do, I don't want to do. Those are the very things that I do. But the, here's the truth is if you are in Christ and you have the life of the spirit, then sin has no power over you. And the fact that you allow sin to have power over you means that you are believing a lie you are choosing to believe and and just out of the pattern of your your life you've come to expect that you are bound by sin and when we're free it takes a while for us to figure out we're free but you are free and sin no longer has a, a hold on you so so the starting point for a life where we break away from sin is understanding that i am no longer an adam and that I am in Christ, that positionally this is true. Because if this is true positionally, then practically part of what we have to do is believe and rebelieve uh this truth in order for it to take effect in our life. The the, the question is like, how do we how do we do this? So and, and we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about how it is that positional righteousness impacts. Practical righteousness, and and that the 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 change in your practice begins with understanding, embracing, believing, truly holding on to the change in your position. And if you are not in Christ, I got to tell you, you have very little hope of any kind of life transformation. But if you are in Christ, then you can begin to live the life that He has given you now. When when I. Um, Uh, was in Bible college. After two years, uh, I was asked to travel and to speak. And um, I would preach like 11 times a week. And I only had, like eight sermons. Um, so when when you have eight sermons and you're preaching 11 times a week, uh, you get a lot of practice and you get pretty good at it. And people were like, oh, wow, you're really good at this. Um, the problem was I was speaking about something that was not true in my heart. I wasn't free. I was speaking of life in Christ, but I wasn't experiencing life in Christ. And And the problem wasn't commitment. I was as committed as I knew how to be. And I just couldn't do it. And it wasn't like volitional rebellion. I wasn't just trying to say, I'm going to show you God. I just couldn't do it. So I went back to school and I finished college and then went on to seminary. And and I continued to read my Bible. And I would read, you have been set free. Sin no longer is a master over you. You are no longer under law, but under grace. You've been crucified with Christ. And it was different than my experience. My experience was that I would put out a lot of effort. And then I would fail, and I remember finally getting to a point where I realized that 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 constant effort and failure, effort and failure, was because something had not become actually alive in me. And I remember saying, like it was um, September of 1999, I was sitting in the Dallas Theological Seminary parking lot going into a a talk through the Bible seminar, listening to the two-year memorial of uh, uh, Rich Mullen's death. Um, And and I remember praying and saying, God, I I can't do it anymore. I've tried, like I can't not sin. And I know that something is not awake in me, that I'm not alive in you. And I can't generate enough faith to actually save myself. And if you don't choose me, and if you don't save me, then I know in my heart I'm condemned already, and in that prayer, I felt a sense of the Spirit awakening me, and for the first time in my life, I was truly free. Doesn't say I was perfect. I certainly, uh, you know, like was not perfect, but I was free. But I didn't know how to live it. And so I read Galatians 5, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And I thought, well, I don't want to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So I'll focus on that because I don't know how to walk in the spirit. And so I I kind of focused on that. My mistake was that I thought that if I was going to have a close walk with God, that I would do it by managing my sin. And in fact, I, I only actually had... Success in overcoming sin. When I was walking closely with God, I had my Christianity upside down, and and I spent all my time and effort trying to keep my sin at bay. And I I thought that that would help me have a close relationship with God, and it didn't. It was when I was living out the life He wanted, and I was pursuing Him because in Him is life. When I pursued Him, then then those those things were not interesting to me, and I I could say no, I'm I'm not going to do that. Martin Luther said it this way morality and religion are the enemy of the gospel because they are the means by which men pursue righteousness apart from Jesus. And if you are trying to pursue righteousness apart from Jesus, you are not going to be able to do it. And so so it's not a matter of you getting your life together. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. And it's not about us becoming good enough. It's about us choosing him and, and, and embracing him and life in him. And when we do, then, then those other choices, they, they begin to pale and we go, I'm not interested in that. And so, so Paul's going to say, look, you're going to pursue God by pursuing a relationship with Jesus. And, and you're going to continually allow God to control more and more of your life. um, And you're going to allow the life of the spirit to just flow out in your daily, daily life, because you have found life in him. John 10 says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And so our justification is first and foremost about getting God, but simultaneously, it's about us receiving that the life that God created us for. It's about us having a relationship with our creator and in, in having that relationship, we have life. And, and if we have that, sin will begin to fall off of us. Salvation begins with knowing you're an Adam, you're a sinner, you're an enemy of God, and God placing you in Christ and understanding now I have life. I have his life. And everything that's true about him is true about me. And everything that's true about him is true about you. So if you are in Christ, then sin is no longer your identity. Sin is no more of you then it is of Jesus himself. You have the ability to say no to sin. Sin lives with you, but it is not you. It, it, it lives with you, but it is not your master. You have the ability to say to your sin, sin. You are not my master. Bitterness. You are not my master. Anxiety. You are not my master. Despondency. You are not my master. Lust. You are not my master. Greed. You are not my master. Rage. You are not my master. Jealousy. You are not my master. Indulgence. You are not my master. Ingratitude. You are not my master. And you are able to say to those things, those, this is not who I am. I am in Christ and everything that is true of him is true of me. And so I choose him and I choose the way of of Christ and I can say no to these things. And it's learning to address sin like it is a separate thing. And we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks and you go, that sounds a little bit weird, but, but when you understand that sin is like a parasite attached to your flesh and, and. It is with you, but it is not you. And you can say no to it and you can starve it. When you understand that, you understand that what it truly means to be in Christ is that you live his life and you say no to sin like he says no to sin. What is true of him becomes true of you. His life in me has set me free. And he is my master because he is my life. That one simple truth will revolutionize your whole entire Christian experience. But look, it's only through God's grace, coming to you at a point where you are actually open, maybe vulnerable, broken, a place where you're willing to say, I can't do this anymore. And when you get to that point, the Father will enlighten your eyes and you will see that Christ is not just your master and Lord, Christ, is your life. And so once you begin to understand that Christ is your life, then you can begin to disbelieve all the lies that you've been believing, you can disbelieve the lie that you are stuck, and and that sin um, holds you and and you can begin to believe the, the truth that Christ has set you free, both from the penalty of sin, and the power of sin. You can disbelieve the lie that your sins are too terrible and your shortfalls are too numerous for God to be able to forgive you. And you can start believing that God loved you even when you were his enemy and he chose to forgive you, you can disbelieve the lie that that you have to carry your shame, and that you have. You, you can start believing the truth that that just like your sin was crucified with Christ and buried with him, your shame was buried with him. And when he rose, he left it behind. But all this rebelieving starts with believing that Christ is your life, that you are in Christ positionally, and that you have the life of Christ practically and that you have the righteousness of christ to powerfully overcome sin if, if you are still far from god that is is, you're you are seeking you aren't aren't sure what you believe about god if you if you have not come to a point where where god has granted you saving faith and you have received the holy spirit if, if you are at that point and you're wrestling with this question like maybe the question is am i a sinner do i need a savior that needs to be your starting point. You need to answer that question. And hopefully we helped get you down that path this morning. Um, but the, the answer to that um, is, is for you, the next step. For, and, and if you haven't crossed the line of faith, then, then as you hear this, th- there's really only three options for you. One is you can just flat out reject it and go, no, I find it offensive that you say I need a savior. And I would urge you, don't reject it. Second Corinthians says that today is the day of salvation and I hope that you will not reject it. You could choose to neglect it. That is, I'm gonna put it off. I'm just, you know, I'm young. I'm I'm, I'm gonna wait until I'm older. This is maybe something that older people need. But James says, what is your life? It's just a vapor. It appears for a moment, like like a a vapor on on a mirror after the shower and then it's gone, right? And and Hebrews says that it's appointed to every man to die once. And after that, there's judgment. And you don't need to face judgment because the one who has chosen to love you and die for you has taken the judgment. And so if there's a judgment when you die and the judgment's already been passed, the blood of Christ has been applied to him. The blood of Christ has been applied to her. Then you don't have to fear judgment because you go, hey, we already have a judgment. But I would say don't neglect it. Don't put it off because life is short. And and if there's anything that this COVID thing has taught us is that that sometimes you think you're healthy and you're fine, and then 220,000 people who thought they were healthy and fine have died, right? Don't neglect it, but receive it. The scripture says that grace and faith are how we're saved, and it is a gift, of God, that God gives it to us as a gift. He longs for us to have this gift. And if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised him from the dead, he will save you. John 10 says that God gives us eternal life. That is, he will give you himself. He will give you the eternal life of the eternal one. He will give you his Holy Spirit God will give you eternal life and you will never perish. You will never die because the life of God is in you and no one will be able to take you out of his hand. So don't reject it. Don't neglect it, but receive it as a gift. If you're a Christian and and you, you go, Hey, I, I I've been a Christian a long time and I'm still really wrestling with this idea. I feel like I'm defined by my sin. I tell lies because I'm a liar. I, you know, what, whatever the, the thing is, and you, you're believing a lie that, that you are stuck, that you can't break away. I want you to pray this and, 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 and pray, Lord, I have been set free. Let me experience freedom. I am in Christ. The spirit is in me. I've been set free. I want to know what it means to actually live free. Help me believe rightly so that I can break away. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about how we believe about our position and how it impacts our practice. And man, this, this, these couple of chapters are so rich for informing us how to live life free. And I hope that you guys will hang with us the whole time because I really believe that if you are looking to break away, God has for you a way forward. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We are so grateful for your grace and your mercy. We are so grateful that we are in Christ and that everything's true. that is true about Jesus is true about us, that we are as righteous as Christ, that we have been given his righteousness. It has been imputed to us. And because it's been imputed to us, we are as righteous as Christ. And we have victory over sin. We just sometimes believe the lie that we don't. And so I pray that you'll free us. I pray that you will free us from the lies that we believe that hold us back from the life that you want for us. And Lord, we ask this because we believe it's according to your will. So we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.